You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's Word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Okay, so I know that we sort of did this in our small group of kind of where we've been in Exodus, but I'm just going to do a brief kind of like to get us where we are. Um, And so since we've already kind of done it corporately, I'll spare us and just like pound out some of them. But so Exodus 1 is when we see the Egyptians um, enslaving the Hebrews because um, they were afraid of the Hebrews becoming Um, fruitful and multiplying like we saw in Genesis and overtaking um, Pharaoh and the ancient um, Near Eastern superpower of Egypt. And so that's kind of where we started. Um, And so they go from Egypt and then we have, um, we see kind of Moses being um, led by God and raised up as a leader um, over his people. Um, And we just saw all of God's different ways that he called Moses and equipped him to be that leader. And so we see him then come back with Aaron and you see the plagues happen. You see the Egyptians released or the Egyptians, the Hebrews released um, from the rule of the Egyptians. And then they come out of Egypt and we see the installation of the Passover. We see the feasting um, that happens. We This will be kind of a key thing as we start this passage, but if you remember, they plundered the Egyptians by asking them. That's all they had to do was ask for their gold and for their valuables, and the Egyptians willingly gave it to them because God was shown more powerful than all of their gods through the plagues. Um, And so then we see the Israelites' journey on to Mount Sinai, um, which is where we see them now. And so we see we got to see Jesus um, as the Passover lamb in the Passover. We got to see um, him as the rock of, um, as the water from the rock, um, and then bre- the bread of life through manna. And so we saw God provide for them in the wilderness. Um, and we watched them journey through the Red Sea, the wilderness, and then now we find them at Mount Sinai. And so if we look back kind of in chapters 19 through 24 is really where we see Moses. This is when he was going up and down the mountain so many times that it was like really kind of difficult to try to figure out, okay, how many times has he gone up? How many times has he gone down? Where are the people? You know, you're just trying to like do all of that. Um, And so in the beginning before, so you see him go up a couple of times and he receives the Ten Commandments audibly. Then he goes back down to the people. And then in chapter 24 is when he makes the multiple up and down. Um, But what's important in 24 that we need to remember is that we see um, Mount Sinai. We see that there's kind of three different sections of it that you kind of see. So what happens in 24 is that the people, right, the Lord said you had to stay at the bottom. They couldn't come up the mountain because it was thundering, there was smoke, God had come down in fire. So the people aren't allowed to enter or go up the mountain. And then you see that the elders and Moses are able to go up to the next part. And that's where we see that the elders, there was a sacrifice that was done through the covenant, through the marriage. So you see the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice, the people are at the bottom, and then the elders are able to go up the mountain, and they are able to feast with God. And so typically when you see bloodshed and then feasting, we see that now there was bloodshed for the sin, the guilt was paid for, and the sacrifice has been um, accepted by God. And so they're feasting, and then we see that Moses goes all the way to the top, 
and that he meets with God himself at the very top, and only Moses is able to go up there. And so as that's kind of the descent that we took in 24, and then 24 ends with he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. So this, when he's up there, he's receiving the Ten Commandments in the tablets, and then he's receiving this information that we're going over today. Um, so that's kind of where we've been and where we're jumping into. Um, I'm not going to read <laughs> this section for all of our sakes. We might be taking up all of our 45 minutes just reading it. Um, but I do want to read the introduction and kind of talk a little bit about that. So we'll start in chapter 25, and we'll read 1 through 9. Uh, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution from me. And this contribution that you shall receive from them, uh, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones for setting, for the ephod and the breastplates, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make. So this is kind of a summary of what God is going to do in the next it's kind of like the summary of the instructions, right? He says, collect an offering, you shall receive these things, you shall make a tabernacle, and it lists the supplies for even the priestly garment. So that's kind of our summary. Some things that are interesting here is the skills that they had um, for making the tabernacle, the priestly garments, the jewels, those were things that they received in Egypt, which is really interesting. So that plunder, all of the th resources that they have now had for this, God provided through the plunder of Egypt, um, but also their skills. They probably learned a lot of skills um, like making oils and spices and fine twine linen were also probably skills that they learned while they were enslaved in Egypt. So it's just interesting even in the first paragraph to watch the Lord redeem that. Um, and so we talked a lot kind of as we've been studying how there's Genesis language in Exodus, which makes sense because it is the Torah. Um, and so this section of scripture, there's so much Genesis language. And when I say Genesis language, I really also just mean the idea of Eden or tabernacle. And so a couple of things I wanted to talk about to set us up was the importance of tabernacle and the importance of priesthood, like kind of, of like a broad overview of those things before we kind of get into, um, the details of the passage, because there is a lot of details. Um, so what is this idea of tabernacle? When you guys think of tabernacle, this will be a little interaction, what do you think of when you hear tabernacle? Yes, yeah, awesome. Or like a tent, like a dwelling place of some sort. Um, yeah, I love that God dwelling with us. And I think um, what's really interesting is the importance of tabernacle is this idea of God coming to dwell with us. And so um, throughout this whole passage, you'll kind of see echoes of Eden. And so I wanted to know, like, what is Eden? Like, what does that mean? Um, and so the idea of Eden is this perfect place in which God and man unite. 
that they're together, that they're dwelling together in unity, and there's nothing separating their presence. And so if you look back at the Genesis scroll, you, we a lot of times say the Garden of Eden, and really it's better to say the Garden in Eden because it has the same like structure and horizontal pattern as the vertical pattern of Sinai, and then as we'll see, the tabernacle will have. And so it's a garden in Eden, so Eden is the place, and then there's a garden within it, and then there's the tree of life, which is where we see God's life and presence. It's a symbol of his dwelling with them in Eden. And then here in this, in Sinai, kind of as I talked about the mountain, the people were at the bottom, the elders were coming, Moses was at the top. You kind of see this like pattern of what it looks like for God and man to dwell. And then we'll see that later on in the tabernacle. And so the importance of tabernacle is that God and man are supposed to be together. Like we're not supposed to be separated. And yet what happened in the Garden of Eden was that Adam and, in, Adam and Eve sinned and God cast them out of the garden because of their sin. And in the, the garden was then... Um, blocked off by a cherubim, which is also a very interesting thing that you see throughout this passage. And so um, I think there's a significant pattern that we can take from all three of those accounts, the Garden of Eden, Mount Sinai, and then uh, what the Lord is setting up in the tabernacle. Um, And so kind of what I'm going to do here is I'm going to talk a little bit about the literary structure of the tabernacle portion. And so we're kind of doing it in like two parts. So I'll tackle the like tabernacle and then I'll tackle um, the priesthood and so the literary structure of kind of all of these chapters has a lot of um, the number seven in them which is a complete number Um, it's a number of perfection representing God's like fullness or wholeness um, as we see that in the Bible and so there's seven pieces of furniture there's seven pieces of clothing in the priestly and the high priestly garment Um, and seven days of ordination and sacrifices, and then God said seven times. Um, And so you see that as he's talking and he's speaking to his people and setting these things up, it's a complete or fullness. Um, And I won't go through this fully, but the different translations of the Bible, sometimes it's hard to figure out what things count as the seven things, if that makes sense. Like, it's easier to read from the Hebrew, not that I can read Hebrew, but this is what (laughs) scholars say. Um, So we can, like, work through that in just a minute. Um, But before I go into the specifics about the symbolism of all the different things, I wanted to take out our papers with all the pictures of it and just briefly kind of, like, walk us through what the text is saying based on these pictures. Um, So we'll start with um, the tabernacle here, um, and then I'll show you kind of where the furniture sits within it. And so um, the tabernacle or the tent, there is um, the courtyard at the very outside, which is where the people can be at. And then there's the holy place, which is through the tabernacle door, and then the most holy place. And so you see that three-tiered pattern within... The most holy place is the ark and the mercy seat. So that's the only thing that sits in there. Then there's a veil that goes between the most holy place and the holy place. And then within the holy place, you see the altar of incense, which is directly in front of the veil. And then to the right, you see um, the bread of presence. And to the left, you see the lampstand. And so those are all the things that are within the actual tabernacle. 
you'll see that the tabernacle um, has four layers. We'll come back to that and why that's important later. And then walking outside of the uh, actual tabernacle is the courtyard. And within the courtyard, you have the, wa the water basin or the wash basin and then the um, bronze altar. Um, and so that's kind of the lay of the land. And then the second sheet is where you'll find some of the blown up pictures. I thought I put the bronze altar on here, but I did not, so I apologize for that. But the lampstand, and then um, the Ark of the Covenant, and then the Bread of Presence are all on that second page. Um, and so that's just kind of a helpful tool. We'll go through the priestly garments when I get to part two. Um, but that's kind of helpful. Um, another couple of things that are important about the literary structure of these passages is that you'll see within um, these chapters that it starts in the most holy, then goes to the next holy piece, then goes to the outside. So it's working from most holy outwards, if that makes sense. Um, and then you'll notice that, um, so it works that, that way. Then it takes a break and it goes into the priestly garments. Then it goes into the sacrifices and then it circles back to in chapter 30 to the wash basin and the incense. So it's like almost like an appendix. No one really knows why. It just feels like a, oh, hey, and these two things are in the courtyard. Um, so I don't know exactly what that structure is like but that's if in your brain you can think of it as like an appendix talking back um at it um the other thing to note is in verse three where it says the types of metals that are used gold silver and bronze if you trace those throughout the passage gold and pure gold is most is in the most holy and then gold is in the holy and then it goes silver and then bronze. And so bronze could be copper. And so the more precious metals are equated with the most holy places. And it goes on like that. So you can trace that um, if you like go through and you circle pure gold, 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 gold. And like you go back and you can kind of like find that throughout the passage. Um, and then another important piece is these fine twined linens or these other things that are strewn throughout the passage. They show us that all of these things are made out of precious things like none of these things are just the ordinary things other than um probably some of the bronze like it's just like these are special things that you saw like that are done by skilled craftsmen um so that's kind of the literary structure some things to like look out for as you're working through the passage um and so now we're just going to kind of take i'm going to sort of walk you through scripture i'm not going to read it but i'm just going to take you by furniture items first the way it's laid out in scripture um and I am going to include the appendix in part one. <laughs> so, so, so I'm going to just kind of like loop that back into this part and then we'll go to the priestly garment. So furniture, let's start with the first two paragraphs, which are um, the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. Um, so some significant things about this is that it's representative um, of God's footstool. And so I think it, I can't remember the exact passage, but it talks often about how God is ruling and reigning um, in the heavens, and then the earth is, its, is his footstool. And so that's the idea that it is trying to communicate here. I did look up if the ark, if that word in Hebrew was the same as what we found in Noah's ark and like the basket that we talked about in Moses. And it's not the same word, but it's like the same kind of symbolism. Um, and you can kind of um, take that even 
since it's included with the mercy seat. And so the mercy seat is like a lid that goes on top of it. Um, so the mercy seat, the cherubim are facing each other and are on top of it. And it's the lid that goes on the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant is basically a chest with a lid on top of it. Inside the chest um, is where the Ten Commandments will rest. And then other things along the way are added, which I won't go into now. Um, but the significance of the Ten Commandments is this is supposed to represent that, not just represent, <laughs> remind us that God um, rules by his law, um, that his law is what it has been ruled. And then the mercy seat over the Ten Commandments remind us that um, he has covered over our penalty of the law, that he has been the one that gives us mercy. And that's an overshadowing um, of the penalty of the law, um, which I thought was really awesome. Um, it's also guarded by cherubim or cherubim. I'm not exactly sure how to say that, but you can think of those as guardian angels or um, bodyguards of the most high protectors. You see them used um, when God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. There's one um, that is blocking the entrance back in. Um, and I will talk more about that later. I was going to give a little heads up. I'm going to wait. Um, <laughs> um, and so here at the Ark of the Covenant, we really see this idea of God's justice and his mercy meet in the fact that he has to hold to his Ten Commandments. He has to hold to his law as he rules and reigns. And yet he offers mercy um, and payment for those things. Um, and so I'm really glad, Emily, you brought up in our discussion um, in uh, 29... 44 and 45 um, is really the, like, I feel like what we've seen a lot of in Exodus and really the whole Bible, but it says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Um, and so I think, I mean, this is really like, I don't want to, I don't want to be too spicy, but like, really the like summary of the Bible. Like God is our God and he wants to dwell with us and he's going to do what he can to dwell with us. Um, and so you see that when we mess it up in the garden, from the garden of Eden to the end of time, the goal is Eden. That God and us would dwell together, that we might know him, love him, and serve him as God. And so that's kind of like the purpose statement, I think, of really the whole book of Exodus, that it's this God making a way for us to dwell with him. And so, going back to the Ark of the Covenant, that's kind of the most holy place. That is where God's presence is. It is his footstool, his throne, is what they would have thought of it as. Um, moving on to the table. Um, so the table is on the right side of, we've moved out of the most holy place, and now we are into the holy place. And here we see the bread of the presence. And this has lots of symbolism. One is this idea of feasting. We've seen that multiple times, that when the sacrifice has been offered and accepted, there's this feasting, there's this rest, there's this, um, yeah, just this home that has come. Like you have passed towards um, God's presence, and so there's feasting in God's presence. Um, there's continual provision that God always provides. So the bread that was laid on this table. There was 12 pieces for 12 tribes of Israel. And this was continually, they made sure there was fresh bread at all times on this table. So it's this idea that the Lord is always constantly providing for his people. Um, and then that he is the bread of life. Um, and then the 12 tribes, 12 piece, um, pieces is representing for all people who come to him, 
that he would be the bread of life. Um, so that's the table. And then you have the lampstand. And the lampstand is to the left. And in the lampstand, um, you have seven branches. And so here's the number seven yet again. Um, oh, I didn't mention this earlier, but the number seven also completeness. And it's the seven days of the week. Six work days, seven, seventh day is rest. And so it's a complete like cycle. Um, and so that's the same idea here. Um, some scholars think that the lampstand in the most holy place could also represent God's spirit. I haven't quite figured out how that connects. There's a couple of different passages in Zechariah and Numbers that would point to that. Um, but it's this idea of like the light of life is really um, what it is symbolizing is that God's the light and life of who we are, that he's continually providing um, a light. It's continually burning. It never goes out. They always have it burning in there. Um, And then um, on each of, let me pull out my picture of it so I can address it. So each of these, there might have been a word in there that you, I didn't know what it was when they kept saying it, but I think it's calyx calyx or something i had to google it it's just a bud that's all that that means um i was like nice all right i can handle that um and so there's buds um and instead of an almond tree and what's interesting about the almond tree and what they use you see that um used multiple times in scripture um the most famous one is that aaron's bud eventually buds and it's an almond um blossom and so that'll be to come in Exodus, won't be a spoiler tonight, Um, but it is actually the first tree in spring that buds, and um, basically it's this idea that God fulfills his promises, Um, that that like first, I mean, we all know this living in Michigan, like that first bud, you're like, it's coming, you know, and so like I think that's the idea of fulfillment, that like God always like will fulfill his promises. Um, And so the budding of the almond is this idea. Um, Would anybody be willing to look up Jeremiah 1, 11, and 12 and read that real quick? Okay, that'd be awesome. Thank you. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Jeremiah 1, 11 through 12. No, you're good. Jeremiah 1, 11 through 12. Okay, 11. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over the word to perform it. Yeah, so this idea that the almond branch and that God is watching over his word and that he's true to what he said. Um, and so that's the lampstand. Um, and then we're going to transition into the actual tabernacle or tent. But before I do, I want to make the point that Jesus in all of these things, we will see this kind of towards the end after I talk about it at the end, but Jesus is the true ark, the true bread and the true lamp of our lives. And we see that multiple times in the new Testament. I don't have the references for you, but I can get them for you of, um, where multiple times in the new Testament, um, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things. Um, So now we're moving on to the tabernacle. If you want to pull out this little sheet, you can to look at it. It helps me. Um, We will start um, 
I've kind of already mentioned these things, but um, there is this three-tiered pattern that we see in Eden, Sinai, and then here we see the courtyard. That's like the common place. And then we see the holy place and then the most holy place. And so the people are allowed in the courtyard and the priests are in the holy place and then the high priest can go into the most holy place. And so what's interesting here is if you look in this picture between the um, courtyard and the holy place and then between the most holy place, um, the holy place and the most holy place, um, there is curtains and on those curtains are cherubim. And so every time you go one in there's like a guard so there's like something that has to happen in order for you to cross that line um and so that's just something to look in and not only that if you look at the layers of that the tent is made out of um within those layers there's four layers the most inner layer is blue and it represents the heavens or the skies um the second layer is of goat skins and that represents the covering that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden um, to cover over shadowing sin. And then the last um, or the third one is tanned ram skin that's dyed red to resemble um, the blood sacrifice. And then the outer layer is like a practical layer of like just to make sure the tent doesn't get wet. Um, <laughs> but like the symbolism between those, I think, is like in order to get to the heavens, the most inner layer, there has to be a covering and there has to be blood that is shed um, within to get even through the tent. Um, what was the color? Is it blue? Yes. Blue. blue yep. It's the heavens or the skies. And then the goat skin, I would assume brown. Um, I don't know what it is on the little, it's a brownish color, um, which is the covering that God provides. And then the tanned ram skins that are dyed red is the blood sacrifice. And that is the tabernacle. Um, okay, so now we are moving to the appendix. Um, so this is all technically recorded in chapter 30. Um, and so just kind of know that's where we're moving to. Um, the altar of incense and then the wash bin. Well, there's the bronze altar, which is this big one, which is where the sacrifices are done. Then there's the wash bin and then the incense is before the veil in the holy place. So the only one that's actually in the holy place is the incense. Um, and so, really, there's not a lot to say about the altar. Um, there's a lot of details that are included about it, but basically, it's a very bloody mess, um, and it's copper for a reason, and it has, like, a grating that goes underneath it that catches all the nastiness. Um, so, there's a lot of details. You can read about that. Um, but what's interesting to note kind of about, there's a lot of recordings about the rings that each of the things are carried on basically and you can even follow the metals out so like the metal that would be associated with the copper would be the silver like it'd be the least like does that make sense I'm like I can't get my words together but that's the idea um so that's the altar and then the incense uh there's a lot of different things here about the incense altar so this one is right before the veil before the most holy place um and so 
A lot of scholars think it's the prayers of the saints, which it definitely could be that, but there's not really anything talked about with prayers. But that reference is Revelation 8, 4, where it talks about how the prayers of the saints are uh, offering unto the Lord. And it's a, I can't remember the exact reference, what it says, but um, reference that. Um, But uh, I think actually it's a, a smaller version of what is happening at Mount Sinai because what just happened in the chapters before then, God ascended onto the mountain. There was burning fire where he came and was present. There was smoke. Um, And so I think it's actually kind of like a smaller version of what was happening at Mount Mount Sinai as a remembrance and even back to the burning bush where God appeared um, to Moses in the beginning. Um, And so a lot of times when we see fire and smoke, it's God. Um, Not all the time, but um, how he is. Another thing I wanted to say here is that there's a verse that talks about, let's see if I can get it to you there. Let's get to the end. Um, It says, verse 9 of chapter 30, it says, you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering or a grain offering, you shall not pour drink offering on it. Um, and so I thought that was interesting in the fact that, like, God, I think we've kind of mentioned this in small group, but God um, decides the way he's worshipped. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't get to decide the way that we come to God. Um, we, God is the one who designs the way in which he's supposed to be approached. Um, and so I think that's even helpful for us today as the church. Like we, even today we go by his law in the new Testament and how he does church and worship. Um, that's so no unauthorized fire is what in my mind I was like, yes, the Lord is the one that desires to be worshiped and he has a way in which he wants to be worshiped. Um, and then the wash bin, there's also not a lot to say here in that sacrifice. It kind of has a practical and a spiritual meaning. Practical in that after you do a sacrifice on the altar, there's a need for cleansing, like, from the blood. And so just practical, there has to be water close. Um, and then a spiritual cleansing that the priests, before that they could enter into the holy places, had to be ceremonially washed and clean. Um, and so that's the tabernacle. Um, and the furniture within it. Are there any questions? No guaranteed answers. But any questions or clarifications on any of that? Do you know if people, like, actually came and ate the bread? Like, was it supposed to have been eaten or just a visual, regular reminder of it? Like, I cannot say for 100% sure, but I think the Levitical priests were allowed to eat it. In Leviticus, I think it notes that. Mm -hmm. But I don't think everyone was allowed to eat like, it. It wasn't. It's not even like the Lord's Supper is. No, like it's not a communal eating. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. Um, but I do think we'll see. Kind of, there is some pieces of sacrifices and other things that are put away for priests mm-hmm. to eat. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know if that's one of them. So don't quote me on that. No, but sorry. I'm pretty sure in Leviticus it says something about them having the allotment to eat that. But I don't know. That's a good question. Mm-hmm. I think yep. I have a question in verse 57. Is, is there some, something? Of like what that? chapter? Sorry. Oh, um, 29. <laughs> okay, let me get there. Sorry. Um, I, I was wondering if there was something more to the sentence, whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Like, is there is there something more to that? Uh, what verse is that again? Sorry. 
Psalm 29, verse 37. Is it kind of like the sacrifice becomes a collector? Mm -hmm. Maybe, because that's what would be touching the altar. It's like whatever touches that. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm not 100% sure. I'd have to like go back and study this section. But one of the things that in the Exodus for You book that he talks about, and I'll get to this um, when we talk about um, the sacrifices at the end. Um, but it's like sin goes in one direction and then it's paid for and holiness comes back. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this like, corporate holiness that happens so it's like sin it's paid for and then it's like this contagious holiness that comes back from there and flows from there um and so I would assume it's like along those lines but I would have to go back and really look at that that paragraph to give you a definite answer I was kind of um just I was thinking somewhat similarly as what you said like why is it that when I when something touches the altar, it doesn't. It's it's kind of like it gets infected by the holiness. Mm-hmm. That was kind of what I was thinking yeah. when she spoke to. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, and it's really cool to like watch that whole thing. And if you think about like even in the church, one thing that we talk about too is this idea that our sin is corporate, but our obedience is corporate. And so like when we sin, it affects other people. But also our obedience affects other people. It builds each other up. And so I think there is, like, you see that within, I think, the Old Testament is that there's this idea if it's something sinful and you touch it, you become unclean. But if it's holy, you know, I don't know. I don't know all the details to that, but I would say that there's some sort of loop that happens when sin is paid for and holiness is released. Um, Okay, so now we're going to shift gears. Um, I'm at 33 minutes, so... Here we go. Um, But we're going to shift gears to the priesthood. And so we kind of have gotten to see what does it look like for God in the heaven and his throne to be on earth in some sense, right? It's not fully there, but in some capacity, his presence is actually in the tabernacle. Like we've seen him in the bush. We've seen him in all these other places. So he is there, not fully and not complete yet, but there is this idea and so if he's there how do we get to him you know like how how do we get to the place where we get to dwell with God and I think the priesthood is part of the answer (laughs) not all of it but part of it um and so I had to ask the question like what is a priest and what are like his duties if that makes sense and this is actually there's probably a lot more scholarly answers I don't know um but in the book gentle and lowly he actually talks about Um, He's talking about Jesus as our high priest, but he talks about the duties of a priest, and that is that they represent the people to God, and they represent God to the people. So it's like a both, it's going two directions. It's taking God to the people and bringing God to the people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was a helpful understanding of what a priest does, mediator between two parties. Um, And so here in the priesthood of Israel, we kind of see... Um, Moses as the high priest, right? He is the one that is able to go all the way up to the mountain to meet with God. And then we see the Levitical priesthood get established here. Um, and they are able to go into, um, the holies, but they can't go into the most holies. Um, and then we have this idea. We've been talking about how God is making for him a kingdom of priests, right? So you have the high priest, priest, 
then you have the priest, and then you have the priesthood of Israel, right? They're becoming a nation of priests that are supposed to represent God to the people. And so I think now thinking about that as in the church too, Jesus is now our high priest, and we are now a priesthood of believers. I think you could probably say, someone can correct me who if you don't agree, I'm still working through this one, but like the elders are a type of priest or pastors. They go between God and the people. We don't need them to go fully because we have the great high priest, but they're in a sense, an earthly representation of that. Um, And so that's kind of the importance of priesthood. And we'll see kind of more later on how Jesus is our high priest and why we don't need all these things. Um, but we also get a chance as a church to be priests to others in that we get to bring others into um, the church and we get to bring others um, into the knowledge and presence of God. Um, okay, so now we're moving into the priestly garments. Um, and so I was confused. I was like, why is it important for a priest to have a garment in the first place? Like, what is so important about having that? Um, and I think. The best analogy was from the Exodus for You book, um, and that was this idea um, that it's a uniform, and when you wear a uniform, there's an authority that is given to you. And so um, let's say you are a police officer, and one day you tell someone to stop, and you don't have your police uniform on, and then the other day you do. You know, like, there's more authority when you have your uniform on and you're doing your duty than if you don't. And so... That's the idea. I think in scripture it says it's for glory and beauty. Um, I think is what it says in the scripture, which I thought was cool. It's like for, to understand the glory of God, but then um, also, um, yeah, you know, like, you're like, I mean, there's like a bunch of stones on the front and on the shoulders and like bright colors and all the things. So it's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> so we will just do the same thing that we did with the furniture and we're going to go through the priestly garment. So feel free to pick up your little, uh, did I say this is from the ESV already, study Bible? Just wanting to give credit where it's due. <laughs> oh no, I did not draw. Just like the background behind me. I worked really hard. <laughs> um, okay, so if you look at this priestly garment, there's actually, so these, one thing that's important to know about all of these pictures is that this is like one best human rendering. There's like a lot of different like pictures that you can get that have slightly different variations. So no one really knows for sure exactly what it looks like, but these are pretty close. Um, And so you have the turban or the diadem, um, which is another word for crown. Um, And that part um, says, I think, holy or set apart um, for the Lord um, on it. And then you have, this is all from memory. I'm like, all right, can I do this? Um, The... um, how do you say that? Does anybody know how to fully say that? The ephod? Ephod, is that what it is? I think, I think it is, ephod. That's how I've been saying it, but I'm like, I think it's that. The ephod is, um, it's not the breastplate with all the stones, but it's the gold, it's like the, um, not the blue robe, but the like... Apron? The apron, yes. That's a good, I was like, that's a term in our language. Um, and it like slides over, and then it has two stones on the top piece. And the two stones on the shoulders have the 12 tribes of Israel, um, like, engraved on them. Um, And then on top of that, you have the breastplate of judgment. And that's actually a pouch, which is really interesting. We'll get to that in a second. But it's not just one piece. It's, like, literally a pouch, and then there's stones in it. 
talk about that in a minute. Um, and then you have the robe that's blue, and on the bottom of the robe is where you'll see the pomegranates and the bells. And then um, you have the sash. And so they said that that's what is, I think, keeping everything on, or there's like some piece that it's like holding on to fully, but I don't know exactly which piece that is. It might say in the scripture. Um, and then there's basically a checkered robe or undergarment that goes underneath it for um, covering purposes. So, because without that, it's a little airy. Um, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and that's actually, it's really funny because um, there is like a piece of scripture that talks about that. And there's this whole idea of like nakedness in the Bible and God covering our shame and guilt. It's actually like, there's actually more symbolism to the undergarments than you might think. Um, so that's kind of like an outline of the priestly garments. Um, and so we'll start with the um, ephod, and that is they have on the shoulders, they have the two stones, and the purpose of that is to bring the names of Israel before the Lord as remembrance. Um, I don't really know exactly what that means on the shoulders. I don't think they're sure exactly what that means, but it's this, that's what Scripture said, is to bring the 12 tribes of Israel, the people um, of God, in remembrance before him as the high priest goes. Then you have the breastplate, which is also a pouch. Um, and so on the pouch, you have the 12 stones. Um, and those 12 stones have the names of the tribes of Judah, um, or tribes of Israel, Judah being one of them. Um, can't name all of the tribes. Um, but that is um, the breastplate of judgment. Its purpose was that the high priest would bear the names of Israel before the Lord, and he would bear their judgment like for their sin on them. Um, and what's really cool to even think about that in the future, that like um, our names are written on Jesus, like he bears our names before the throne of God. Um, and so we get to see that um, as a part of Jesus being our high priest, is that he bears our name, not just tribes of Israel, but he bears our personal name before God. But that was what it was symbolizing. Um, and so within it, there's a pouch behind it. Um, and so if you were counting up all the seven of them, I think it's either, I think either the turban and the crown are different or the pouch and the breastplate are different. Like that would be my best guess for the seven. Cause you technically, if you look in the ESV, it only comes up to six. So for anyone that wants to do further study, I was over there like, there's only Six. There's only six. So just, I think that's what it is, but I have to do more research. Um, there's two stones that go inside of this pouch, um, the Urim and the th Thummim, I think. Um, but they are the first and the last letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which is Alpha and Omega. And so they stand for light and perfection. And so it's like this idea of God's character. And they were like, apparently stones of decision so kind of like the idea of casting lots you kind of see that throughout scripture this idea um that it would be the way that they determine god's will um but it would be kind of like the last resort so they would follow his covenant first and then go to the priest and then it would be it's more of like national decision not like every everyday <laughs> decisions um if that makes sense um so and then um, yeah, so it's just, yeah, the breastplate and the ephod are this idea symbol of the priest bringing the people to God. That's like part of his role is to bring 
the people to God and bear the people before him. Um, and then the next one is the robe. And so you see the pomegranates at the very bottom. This is also a reference back to the Garden of Eden. The idea of like fruitfulness is what a pomegranate kind of like symbolizes. Um, and you see pomegranates, I think, in Solomon's temple too, later on in scripture. And so you kind of see, I think what I've learned about the Old Testament, which is really cool, is you, there's like a lot of symbolism that shows up in Exodus, but it's actually been like, all over the New Testament and I'm like slowly like trying to like get a grasp of where they all are um and then the bells at the bottom um are not for the Lord but for us as a reminder that um the bells are what when the high priest goes in so the high priest goes into the most holies once a year on the day of atonement um before the Lord um and so the bells are there so that if the priest doesn't do everything exactly as God says and he ends up having to kill him, that the bells would signify no more movement of the priest of what he was doing. Um, and so the bells are an audible reminder that sin can't come in the presence of God. Um, and what's interesting is in, our, in the first section of this part of Exodus, um, when it names remember actually where it names but there's actually um two high priests that are actually put to death because of their sin and lack of um understanding or reverence before the lord in temple practices um so that's the bells and then uh the turban or the diadem is a crown um that i believe says holy to the lord um if anybody has that scripture it says something let me see tabernacle yeah Holy, Holy to the Lord. Okay, that's what I was pretty sure of. Um, and it's just this idea that the priest is separated from the people, that he is consecrated, set apart um, for a job and for a role in an office, and he is holy to the Lord. Um, and then we've kind of talked about this. There's not a lot of symbolism or that they know of behind these two, but it's the coat of checker is the, like, undergarment. to That was, like, the symbolism of making sure that you're covered um, and then the sash, I believe, is practical. It might have some symbolism, but I'm not exactly sure what that is. Um, and so that is the priestly garments. And so that is, I didn't realize this at first, but that's only the high priest. So only the high priest wears all of this garb, if that makes sense. Um, so the other priests have, you can, you can see that after the high priestly garments, um, it says these are also supposed to be, I think it also uses the same words, beauty and splendor. Well, I can't remember what the two words are at this moment in life. Um, but it uses the same terminology for these, but it has different ones. It says coats, sash, and caps. And so all of these priestly garments and the sacrifices that are made are done every time there's a new set of priests that are, um, raised up. Um, Okay, so that is the priestly garments. Um, now we're going to move on to, like, the role of priest and what they do. Um, any questions? Again, no guarantees, answers of them, but any questions on priestly garments? Cool. We'll circle back, too. Um, okay, the next kind of topic you'll see, it then breaks up into um, the animal sacrifices. So we've made... It through the furniture, we've made it through the priestly garments, um, and now we are moving on to 
animal sacrifices for installation of priests. And so um, you'll see this a lot in historical narrative, but it gives you like an introduction of like the whole section and then it'll go into more detail. And so that's what you see in verse 10 of um, 28, I believe, um, or 29, sorry, um, is the introduction. It kind of sets up what the sacrifices are and what they will do. Um, and so then we see here that the priest, as they're installed, they are anointed, ordained, and consecrated. Um, anointing is done, um, is there are like two different things, anointing and consecration. So anointing is to be given a task or a role to fulfill, and that's shown by like the oil that they put and anoint on them. Consecrating is to set apart as holy or to make clean. Um, And so they kind of go through both of those. Um, And ordain, I think, is like to commission, but it didn't really have a lot of, like it didn't have a clear, these three things are separate. But anointing and consecration have two separations in the text, if that's helpful. Um, So when the priest is consecrated, um, this is initial priesthood, but also what they were to do as any new priest came in. Um, That they are to ceremonially wash in the basin. That they are to offer a sacrifice. Um, And so those are kind of like the two big ones washing with water for purity, and then a payment for sin. And so we see that like over and over in the book of Exodus. There's the um, blood um, through the sacrifice and the ceremonial washing. Um, Within the sacrifice, you'll see, this is actually, um, I'm getting to the part about the ear and all of that. (laughs) Um, But there is, I can't remember exactly what verse it is, but it talks about them that they have to lay their hands on the animal. Um, And this is symbolic that they're transferring not only their own sin, but the sins of the people onto the animal. And then the animal takes those sins and dies. And that's what is a payment for their sin. So the laying on the hands is a symbolic transfer of sin onto the animal so that the animal can bear that sin. Um, And so, yes, thank you. No, 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 that's great. Um, It would be really interesting, another question that I have post this is, like, the festival of Yom Kippur, which is, like, the Day of Atonement, versus these, like, initial sacrifices of, like, putting the priests in, like, because, like, in Yom Kippur, there's two different animals that are sacrificed. One is sent outside. There's just a lot of really cool symbolism with, like, the high priestly sacrifice in the Day of Atonement versus the most holy like, there's just a lot of really cool that I don't know enough about yet. Um, but for today, that's what you need to know. <laughs> but more study to come. Um, and then what's interesting about in verse 20, um, where it says, And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet. I don't know right or left if that has symbolism, But what's interesting about this is it's an ear marking. So we've seen this actually in a law in Exodus 21.6. And it's basically like a marking um, of continual obedience. So um, the ear is for like hearing and then the um, thumb and the toe is for obedience. And so it's like this hearing and this action that takes place. And so in the ancient Near East, 
um, to lose a big toe or a thumb was a sign of uselessness. And so basically when you mark the ear and you mark those, you're saying that um, they have heard and that they are obeying and that they are useful unto the Lord. And so it's like almost like a vow that the high, that the priest has made of like continual obedience in this role, um, which is interesting. I think they use the word perpetual obedience, um, which is cool. Um, so that is that. Um, and then after all of this anointing, consecration, sacrifices, after that's finished, um, it says, <laughs> sorry, it's worth it. Yes, it says in verse 31 of chapter 29, you shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent, there you go, of meeting. Um, they shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration, but an outsider shall not eat them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh of the ordination or of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire, and it shall not be eaten because it's holy. So here we do see that the priests eat the bread, and they also eat um, the ram of ordination. Um, and so here we see that idea of feasting again. There was a blood sacrifice, there was washing, and now there's a feasting that they have um, before the Lord. Um, and so there's this like completeness, this wholeness that they're like established in office. Um, and so I thought it was really interesting that they also, um, in verse 36, it says, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. I don't fully know, but it was making me think of Acts 3, 1 of this like continual living sacrifice that we are, um, to the Lord as we, um, are obedient unto him. And so... Yeah, and so this is when I was going to talk about that loop where you see this idea of like sin goes in, it's paid for, and then it comes back out in holiness. Um, and you see that, um, that it becomes corporate holiness um, that the priest has done on our behalf. Um, there's a lot I want to talk about with Christ being our priest and our tabernacle and all that. But before we do, I feel like I want to talk about the census that is given randomly. Or at least to me it feels random. I'm sure it was not random for the people. But for me it was a little weird. Um, that is in chapter 30 in verse 11. Uh, it says, The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there will be no plague among them when you number them. Each one is numbered in a census shall give this. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Um, the shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give this offering to the Lord. And so what's interesting about this is if you remember the book of Numbers, that's what the book of Numbers is. It's like the counting up of the tribes of Israel and the tabernacle is in the middle. That's presence in the middle, tribes surrounding them. Um, and so the book of Numbers is what records the census um, of the people. Um, but what's interesting is that here is where we see that sal salvation and kind of what the priests have accomplished goes from being just something that the priests have done to now every person is, takes an action towards salvation. They're saying, I will give um, and I will be part of this relationship and so it's kind of like becoming went it went from being like 
high and up above and impersonal to now every person is responsible for taking a step to bring that relationship. Um, and so they call it, I think, yeah, a ransom for, their, for his life or the atonement um, tithe, which is interesting. Um, okay, so there's been a lot of symbolism. There's been a lot of different things. Um, but to kind of sum all of it up, um, I think it's just really awesome to see how much the Lord wants to dwell with us and how like that is the end all be all that one day, if we look at the marriage supper of the lamb, that that Eden will be a real and active thing where we are fully in God's presence, fully enjoying him and it'll be eternally present in that moment. Um, and that Christ is our better of all these things. Like he is the one that accomplishes it because he is God. And so, um, one of the things that like, if you look at the book of Exodus and where where we've come, we can say Christ is the manna. He is the rock that bears our punishment. He is the Passover lamb. He is the tabernacle. He is the priest. He is the sacrifice. And we might be like, well, how can he be? the sacrifice and the tabernacle and the bread of the presence and the light and the, and like the point is he's not just one of these things. He's all of these things and more like all of these metaphors and symbolism, like all of them. He still, you were like, you're not even getting to who Christ actually is um, and how Christ makes that gap between God and man an actual no longer gap that we might have our Eden be together. And so um, the Bible Project has a really awesome, they do um, a podcast on each of the scrolls in the Torah, but the one on Exodus is fantastic. And he, I couldn't talk about it tonight, but he will blow your mind on this idea of like how important this idea of God dwelling with us is. Um, but he gets into a lot of the philosophy of it. It's very nerdy, but it's very good. So if you have the time worth the listen. Um, it'll set up this idea that like God is eternally present. And the reason why Eden and his presence can go different places is because he is like outside of time. Like we're bound by it. I won't get into all of that, but it's, it's crazy. It's nuts. And so all of these present realities of the fact that Christ has already bridged the gap. Like he is already at the throne room sitting next to God as our high priest um, and has made all of these things. We don't have to do these things. They're just a ritual that we got to see, like a little glimpse into it of what Christ has done for us. Um, and so I wish my time was more because I could talk and talk and talk about this. But I want to read um, Hebrews um, 8 through 10. And I know it seems like a lot, but I promise you it'll be a worthy read. Um, And so I'm just going to go for it. It's really great. Okay. Um, Hebrews 8 through 10. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. 
For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises for if that first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion to look for a second for he finds fault with them when he says behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will establish a new covenant with the house of israel and with the house of judah not like the covenant that i made with their fathers in the day when i took them by the hand and and to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and, sh- and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and earthly places of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. But this, the Holy Spirit indicates, that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot be perfect, the conscience of the worshiper. The deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that those who called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not a force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law that
that had been cleared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it is necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not only holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him i'll wait and let you guys do 10 but i think that uh, is a pretty good summary of what we just studied it's it's really crazy to like read that in light of studying this like it's just it's crazy so um yeah just thankful for the lord um we will stop there